So Matthew chapter 23, we're going to read through the whole chapter, but don't worry, we're not going to study through the whole chapter today. But Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 1, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do to be seen by men. They make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garments. They love the best seats at feasts and best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But you do not be called Rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father, he who is in heaven. And do not be called teacher, for one is your teacher, the Christ. But he who is greatest among you shall be your servant. And whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And he who humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive a greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte. And when, you, when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourself. Woe to you, blind guides who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold on the temple, he's obliged to perform it. Fools, blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it's nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that's on it, he's obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gift on the altar or the gift, or the altar that sanctifies the gift. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and by him who sits on it. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisees, first clean the inside of the cup and dish that the outside may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you're full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, 
because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our father, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourself that you are sons of those who murder the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some, of, uh, some you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stoned those who were sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. You know, I don't know about you. I, I, I trust, I believe that you guys, every one of you is just like me in that, you know, I'm so thankful for the word of God. Man, I love the word of God. Every word of it, every jot, every tittle, every intent behind God's word, every paragraph, every chapter, I'm so thankful for it because it's through God's word that we discover his heart towards us, his love for us, his mercy that he has for us, his grace that he bestows upon us, which the Bible says he, he wonderfully lavishes upon us. I'm so thankful for the word of God. It's through the word of God that, that our future home with Jesus Christ is revealed to us, Right? that for which we so eagerly wait for, long for, Lord Jesus, come quickly, is my heart's cry. And I'm sure that's your heart's cry. Don't you love that verse in the song? You know, when faith becomes sight. Man, I love that verse. Every time I hear that song, I got to comment on that verse because one day that's our reality. Our faith is going to become sight. I can't wait. I can't wait. Well, as we come to Matthew 23, we come to Jesus' last public address before his death. This is the last time he speaks in the hearing of the common people. After this, what he does is he pulls away from the crowds and then begins to concentrate on pouring into his disciples, preparing them for the cross that's ahead of him, that's, that's actually just a few days ahead of where we're at in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It's important for us to understand, I think, that, you know what, we got to remember there's no chapter breaks in the original writing of the Bible. So this public address, it actually comes right on the hills. It comes right immediately uh, as a response to the events of Matthew 22. Right where the disciples of the Pharisees, along with the Herodians, came to ask Jesus a question. And they asked him, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Then they were shut down. They were shot down, you know. 
And the people heard Jesus. They just marveled at his answer when he, he replied to them, listen, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar and to God the things that are God. It was just amazing to the people. They heard that and they were just like, what? Then after that, you know, in fact, it was the very same day the Sadducees came to him and also asked their question of Jesus regarding the resurrection. And they didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in life after death. So they concocted this question regarding a hypothetical scenario of a woman who had married a man and then her husband died. And as was the custom, uh, that man's brother would take uh, his widowed wife to be his wife and raise up children in the brother's name. But, you know, this, this brother took her as his wife, and she died. Uh, he died living, leaving no children. So the next brother took her and died, and the next, and the next, all through the seven brothers. And then at last, you know, she died. And after they laid out this hypothetical scenario, to, they asked Jesus the question, so, <laughs> in the resurrection, whose wife Will she be? Because you know what? She had all seven of the brothers. You know, they thought for sure this hypothetical question would stump Jesus. They thought this one, they were for once and for all going to prove that the resurrection was completely absurd. And you know, Jesus answered and said to them, you're mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. Jesus said to the Sadducees, you know what your problem is? Your problem is you don't know the scriptures. And not only that, you don't know the power of God. And because of this, you're wrong in your assumptions, right? And then Jesus went on to show them without a doubt that there is a resurrection. And not only that, there's a resurrection, but that there's life after death, which again, the Sadducees didn't believe in. Jesus took them back to the word. He takes them to the burning bush burning bush passage and pointed out to them that God said, I am present tense. I am currently the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. And when Jesus answered this crazy made up scenario of the Sadducees, again, the people that were listening to this conversation between them, I mean, they were just astonished at the wisdom of Jesus and at the answers that Jesus gave. And then immediately after that, we looked at it last week, a scribe came to Jesus and he asked Jesus, which is the great commandment of the law? And Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Jesus summed up the entire Old Testament in these two commandments. Love God with everything that's within you, with everything that you are, and love your neighbor just like you already love yourself. Each of these questions that were brought to Jesus, they were very controversial in his day. I mean, these questions brought division. They asked Jesus these questions in front of the crowds of people that were there in order to trap him, hoping that he'd say something 
that would halt his growing popularity and alienate a large portion of the people that were following him. Well, after Jesus had answered these questions, we saw that Jesus then turned and asked the religious leaders uh, his own question. And it was a question in, in, in a, uh, an effort to try to get them to see him, see that being the Messiah, he is not just the son of David. He's not just a mere man, but he's far more than just a man. And so he asked them, so what do you think about the Christ? Right? Whose son is he? Then they answered and said, the son of David, of course. And Jesus then points them to Psalm 110, says, how then does David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, call the Christ his Lord, call the son of David his master? Now, the point is David, you know, called the Messiah his Lord and master. Therefore, he must be greater than David. He must be divine. And Jesus' question left them speechless. They had no answer for him. The last verse of Matthew 22 says, no one was able to answer him a word. No one was able to refute him in what he was saying. And it goes on and says, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. So from Matthew 22, verse 15, all the way through Matthew 23, it's just a series of, of events that are occurring one right after another, right? And it's at this point, Jesus, in front of this huge crowd of people that were gathered there in the court of the temple to hear him teach, Jesus enters into the scathing rebuke of the religious leaders, right? Of, and, 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 um, you know, just as they finish questioning him, he just begins rebuking them, trying, uh, because they were trying to catch him in something that they were saying. He's, he's turning the tables. And the reason he offers a scathing rebuke to them is that, you know, they were rejecting him. And not only were they rejecting him, but they were asking questions in an attempt to stumble others in an attempt to keep others from placing their faith in Jesus, receiving him as the Messiah. So in verses 1 through 12, the first 12 verses of Matthew 23, Jesus is speaking to the multitudes and to his disciples. Jesus is going to speak a really strong message while the multitudes are there listening in. Jesus is going to reveal to the multitudes and to his disciples the major problems he has with the religious leaders of his day, right? And part of that multitude that's listening in, the part of that multitude that he's speaking to includes the scribes and the Pharisees. And then in verses 13 through 39, the message switches and he very, uh, very, clearly directs his comments to the scribes and the Pharisees. Jesus begins to pronounce eight woes, condemning and denouncing the religious hierarchy of the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. This whole chapter 
is Jesus condemning and denouncing false religion and these false religious leaders parading under the guise of truth. And Jesus condemns and denounces how they represented God the Father to the people falsely. And Jesus calls the religious leaders hypocrites. He, he says they're blind, they're fools, they're whitewashed tombs. It's as if Jesus, after three and a half years of public ministry, three and a half years of teaching and proclaiming the kingdom, three and a half years of displaying the love and grace of God of the Father, after three and a half years of rejection, he now launches into words of judgment in hopes that he can shock these religious leaders, uh, shock them to wake up, to shake them up uh, in front of these people, in front of this huge crowd, right? It's something along the lines, uh, you know, it, it, it's really kind of unbelievable that we're, what we're reading here. Because, you know, humanly speaking, Jesus is only 33 years old, right? He's, he's a young man at this point. To have a 33-year-old man, you know, stand up in the temple and begin to just rebuke these religious leaders in front of this whole crowd, rebuke them for their hypocrisy, it would be, you know, something, you know, I try to think of an example and it's probably not a great example, but it would be something like, you know, a 33-year-old man today standing up in front of the Supreme Court and rebuking them for how they've misinterpreted the Constitution. It's not a great example, but I mean, could you imagine something like that? It's like that. Jesus standing and rebuking these guys. Jesus just lays into these religious leaders and publicly humiliates them as he calls them out for their hypocrisy. That's what's going on here. And you might ask, you know, what happened to Jesus, meek and mild? You know, doesn't the Bible say it's the goodness of God that leads men to repentance? Yes, it does say that. But, you know, the Bible also says, Jude 22, 23, and on some have compassion making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. We're to, have a, a, we're to make a distinction. Yeah, some we offer grace and love and mercy too and, and share with them all of the goodness of God, but others, man, we offer them the law. You know, people that refuse to, to respond to God's goodness and mercy, they need to hear about the law and the coming judgment for their sins in order to shake them up a little bit, in order to wake them up, to get them to consider where they stand in light of the cross, to get them to think about what it's going to be like for them to stand in front of a holy, righteous God. We need to realize that there was a lot that Jesus was very displeased with in regards to the practices of the religious leaders of his day. And he is equally as displeased if any of this stuff, 
you know, is allowed to creep into the church today. These are the things that Jesus would warn us not to allow into our midst. He is very clearly telling his disciples, this is not what he wants them. This is not what he wants us to look like. We need to be careful and recognize that because of the fall of Adam and Eve, each of us has pharisaical tendencies. There's a Pharisee in each one of us. There's a scribe and a hypocrite in each one of us. We're just as fallen as they were. So we need to take these things that Jesus says in this chapter, take them to heart. Let these things search our hearts, right? And if any of these things are present in our lives, we need to confess them. And we need to ask the Lord to remove them from our lives. So we want to keep all of these things in mind as we work our way through this chapter. Again, we're not going to go through the entire chapter today. We're going to break it up into two studies. Today, verses 1 through 12. And Lord willing, next week, verses 13 through 39. And in verse 21, we read, Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Well, you know, the NASB uh, correctly translates this verse, Matthew 23, 2, saying the scribes and the Pharisees have seated themselves in the chair of Moses. In other words, the scribes and the Pharisees had taken to themselves this seat of authority. There's no biblical record any place of God ever giving authority to uh, the scribes and the, uh, to the Pharisees, at least, right? And the scribes and Pharisees, they took this upon themselves. The only authority they had was the word of God they taught. Moses gave the people the law, which was given to him from God. And the pure word of God was to be the only authority in the nation of Israel and in our lives today. And Jesus is saying that people, you know, that the people, they were to obey what the scribes and Pharisees taught from the law. Right? But they're under no obligation to keep those foolish man-made regulations and, and rules uh, that the Pharisees came up with. You know, the righteousness of, of the Pharisees, it was an outward righteousness, ignoring the condition of the heart. And this is the first sign of false religion and false leaders. Right? The false leaders are not called by God, but take authority upon themselves twisting and perverting the word of God, enforcing man-made rules and regulation, uh, regulations upon the people that they lord over, uh, lord themselves over. In verse 3, Jesus says, Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do. And again, Jesus is speaking to them in regards to the writing of Moses. Right? He's not speaking, uh, he's speaking in regards, he is speaking in regards to the law in the Old Testament. But what's interesting here is the word do. We don't see it in our English translations, but that word do there is to do it immediately. And the Greek word translated observe there, it means to observe it, to do it continually, right? The Greek tense of the word do tells us to do it immediately, the Greek tense of the word observe tells us to do it continually. So when it comes to the word of God, we're to take, take it to heart, right? We're to heed it 
and then respond to it immediately. We're to do it. We're to obey it immediately. And we're to continually be doing, practicing the things that are taught in the word of God. And I think you'd agree with me. This is actually an area where I think the church is failing today. Right? The church is full of Christians that are able to nod their heads and say, yes, of course, that's right. Amen. That's right, pastor. Right? But then they fail to apply the word of God to their life. Right? They fail to do what the word of God teaches. Right? They fail to continue in doing what the word of God teaches. And Jesus said, the wise man is the wise, is the man that hears my words and what? Does it. That's right. James instructs us not to be hearers of the word, only deceiving ourselves. We're to be what? Doers of the word. Yeah. And when God speaks to you at a Bible study, write it down. Write it down. I encourage you to bring your Bibles to church and take notes during our study. This is the truth of the matter. If you're here just listening to any study or lecture, you only retain 50% of what you hear. And that's at the most. If you don't fall asleep. If you're reading along as the word is being taught, you're likely to retain 50 to 75% of what's being taught, what's being said. But if you're reading along and taking notes, now you're more likely to retain 75 to 90% of what's being taught. And your notes shouldn't be what I'm saying, but your notes should be what God is saying to you through the study. When God speaks to you in a Bible study, write it down. If you don't have a pad and paper, it's going to be tough to write it down. As he places a thought in your heart, as he speaks to you in your mind, you know what? Write it down and then act on it. You know what? God spoke to me today. God wants me to do this, so I'm going to do it. You know, God is showing me that this needs to change in my life. So I'm going to take steps to change that situation in obedience to him. You know, God has spoken to me to today and I see it. And, uh, you know, I'm going to yield my heart to him. You know, James said, James 1, 23, 24, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man observing his natural face in a mirror. For he observes himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. What James is saying is, is that when we come to the word of God, it's like looking at ourselves in a mirror, right? You see yourself for who you really are as God reveals the truth to you. But then as you walk away, you forget what you saw in the mirror. And James continues to go on, James 1.25, he says, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this one will be blessed in what he does. You know what? When God shows us something, when he reveals his heart to us, when he speaks a word of correction to us, you know, there's a blessing in it for us if we, you know, act upon his word immediately and continually. Right? We need to be people of action. When the Lord speaks to us, we need to respond in obedience. 
right? And to continue in whatever it is that he instructs us to do. Well, Jesus continues in Matthew 23, verse 3. He says, whatever they tell you to observe, that you observe and do, but do not do according to their works, for they say and do not do. The scribes and the Pharisees said one thing, but they did something completely different. They were living two different lives, something that we're not to do as believers. They said one thing, and then they did something totally different, right? It's like the story of the Christian dad who tells his kids, you know what? I'm tired of you guys not getting your homework done. You know, you're watching TV all day. You're not getting your homework done. It's over, right? You're not going to watch TV anymore until your homework is done. That's it. I'm putting my foot down. And then he tells his wife, you know what? I'm tired of you watching decorating shows all day. You know, the house is a mess. You're neglecting your housework because all you do is watch decorating gardening shows. You know, it's enough. I'm putting my foot down. That's it. I've had it. And then he says, as soon as basketball season is over, I'm going to unplug the TV in and uh, we're going to get to work. I mean, it's just hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy. It's a do as I say, not as I do kind of thing. It doesn't work, especially for us as Christians. The religious leaders of Jesus's day, they were doing that kind of thing. And we're going to see in just a bit that they were loading heavy burdens on the people, unwilling to carry any of it um, out themselves. And it can't be. It must not be like that for us as followers of Jesus Christ. This is the second sign of false religion and false religious leaders. These false religious leaders lacked integrity and did not apply, uh, the rules did not apply to them, right? They would teach one thing, condemning others for not obeying the rules, and then they were willing to give themselves a pass, doing something completely different than what they taught. In verse 4, Jesus says, For they bind heavy burdens hard to bear and lay on uh, lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. They bind heavy burdens on, on people. What do you think Jesus is talking about when he says heavy burdens? It was over the 50 volumes of books interpreting the 613 commandments that they came up with from the law of Moses. 365 negative commandments, one for each day, thou shalt not. 248 positive commandments, thou shalt kind of commandments. All the heavy and light commandments we talked about last week. They just heaped up all these things on the people, loaded the people down. They had all these intricate rules that you had to follow in order to follow the rules that they came up with. I mean, it was just rules upon rules. It was crazy. And they were very severe in imposing on others those things which they themselves were not willing to submit to. And not only did they insist on keeping the most minute detail of the law, but they also imposed their own inventions and traditions with strict penalties, if not observed. And yet Jesus said, you know, uh, they wouldn't even lift a finger to keep any of these commandments that they came up with. 
This is another sign of false religion and false leaders. These false leaders add to people's burdens lacking sympathy. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 36, he says that he was, that Jesus was moved. Uh, no, I don't think Jesus said this. It was uh, Matthew's writing this, that Jesus was moved with compassion for them because they were weary and scattered like sheep having no shepherd. Jesus came to set us free from the burdens of life. Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 30, he says, come to me, all you who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The Pharisees, just like all false religious leaders of the world, command, but they do not do the same thing. They don't obey the same rules. They add burdens to the people, failing to practice what they preached. Therefore, they're not true spiritual leaders, right? But they're false, hypocritical dictators and taskmasters. In verse 5, Jesus says, But all their works they do to be seen by men. They love to be seen by men, these scribes and the Pharisees, right? We need to remember, again, Jesus is talking to the disciples in the hearing of the multitudes, right? And the scribes and the Pharisees, they're part of this large crowd, hearing Jesus denounce them, right? And again, I think Jesus is using this teaching moment to tell his disciples, to tell us what we're not to be like and what we're not to allow ourselves to become. The scribes and the Pharisees they love to be seen by men. They love to be in the limelight. Remember what Jesus said back in Matthew chapter 6, how uh, you're to do your good deeds. Remember, he said to do not do them so that people can see you do them, right? We're to do them in a way that only our heavenly Father sees them. Remember, Jesus says when you pray, you're not to pray in such a way that people will say, man, what an amazing man of God that guy is. Boy, she's so spiritual. Do you hear the prayers that she offers to God? That, whoo, that's amazing. We're not to pray in an outward and external way in order to impress other people, right? But when we pray, Jesus said we're to go into our closets where only our heavenly Father sees in secret and will reward us openly. When we fast, when we give, we're not to draw attention to our, ourselves uh, like the Pharisees and the scribes did so that people can see what they're doing. They would literally blow a trumpet. Look at me, I'm giving. We're not to be like that. You know, I think that there's something about our sin nature. I think there's something about our sin nature that wants people to think that we're spiritual maybe more spiritual than we are. We love to drop little hints, you know, to others to pick up on just how spiritual we are and the things that we're doing, right? And it can be a real battle that goes on within our hearts when the Lord uses us to bless others or he uses us in, a, in an amazing way for the kingdom of God, right? There can be a real battle to let other people know about it and even glorify ourselves in it. You know, look at me. 
Right? We need to be so very careful about touching God's glory when he uses us for a kingdom. There's, there's something about sharing what God has done in your life, bringing him glory. And there's another thing about sharing what God's done in your life because I'm just that amazing. Right? We need to be careful not to be getting our fingerprints on God's glory. He's not going to share his glory with anyone. Isaiah 42, 8, God says, I am the Lord. That is my name and my glory I will not give to another. We're to point people to Jesus and help them see his glory, right? We're not to draw attention to ourselves. We're to be transparent. One of my favorite verses is 2 Corinthians 4, 5. Paul says, for we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord and ourselves, your bondservants, for his sake. Man, how that needs to be our attitudes and our service to the Lord and our service to other people, right? The scribes and the Pharisees, they love to be seen by men. They love to do their works in order that people would take notice of them. And Jesus continues and says, they make their phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of the garments. I mentioned the phylacteries last week, right? They were the little box that they would uh, tie on their foreheads containing the Shema and also three other passages from the Old Testament. And instead of God's word having an internal spiritual effect on them, keeping God's word on the forefront of their minds, they interpreted this physically and externally tying these boxes on their foreheads. So it got to the place you know, Jesus is making mention here with the scribes and the Pharisees. It got to the place where they tied bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger boxes on their forehead. Got to the place where, you know, they're trying to show people how tremendously spiritual they were always having God's mind or word on their mind. That you know, got to the place that, you know, they weren't able to walk down the streets, you know, just like under the weight of the sin. You're like, dang, you're knocking in the people. Jesus also mentions the borders of their garments. Back in Numbers 15, Jesus instructed, or sorry, God instructed the Jews to place a blue hem on the border of their garments and place tassels there on it. Today, that's carried over. They don't do it like that today. Today, you see those tassels on the prayer shawls that the Jewish people wear. But back then, it was supposed to be that when they looked down and they saw that blue border, it was supposed to be a reminder that they're a heavenly people, right? Remember the woman uh, with the issue of blood and how she knew that if she could just touch the hem of Jesus's garment, she would be healed? Well, that, that's the blue hem and the tassels that are being referred to in that story. That's what she, she, if I could just touch that blue hem, those tassels of Jesus, I know I will be healed. That's the blue hem that's being talked about here. And the scribes and the Pharisees, what they did is they just enlarged those borders, made them bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, those borders, they were just dragging on the ground. They were so big. Some of them, two to three feet too long, making it so they couldn't walk down the street without tripping over it. You know, they had to pull up their skirts and oh, look at me, how holy I am. You know, it was all just to show off to other people how 
heavenly minded, how spiritual these guys were. And this is what Jesus is talking about, how the scribes and the Pharisees did all this to be seen by men. They loved to be seen by men. They loved to be esteemed by men. And Jesus says, verse 6, they love the best places at feast, the best seats in the synagogues. They love to sit in the places of reverence, the places of, of prominence, the seats where everyone could see them and recognize them. They love to be seen in the places of authority. Verse 7, greetings in the marketplace and to be called by men, rabbi, rabbi. Rabbi literally means great one or honorable sir or supreme one. So the scribes and Pharisees loved the reverence of the people, um, you know, along, they came along with that position, right? They loved being called great one, right? Here, please, oh great one, please come in and, and, uh, you know, take the best seat. Well, thank you. It's exactly where I expected you to seat me. Now that I'm here, now that everybody sees me, let's continue. You know, that's the kind of thing that went on. They love the best seats. They love the attention, the recognition of the people. This is the fourth sign of a false religion and false spiritual leaders. False religious leaders lack humility. They seek out and thrive on being seen by others. They want to be noticed and praised as great spiritual men. Right? They think the position is the mark of greatness. So they sought the best seats. Right? They equated position with success. Well, listen, I'm here to tell you, it doesn't matter where you sit in church or the classroom. It doesn't make you any holier or any smarter. Right? We're all the same. In God's kingdom, right, success is measured not by where you sit, by what you wear, by what you do outwardly, but it's measured by faithfulness and humility compassion, and love. Verse 8, Jesus says, but you do not be called rabbi, the one, for one is your teacher and, and cry, uh, the Christ, and you are all brethren. It's interesting, even within the Christian church today, I mean, there's a tendency to go in this same direction. There's so many titles in the Christian church. Reverend. Reverend Gary. That's, yeah, man, it tastes bad in my mouth. You know, reverend means to stand in awe of, right? In some churches, it's the right reverend, the most high reverend, right? In a lot of churches, pastors, it's not good enough to be called pastor, so they choose the title of bishop, you know? I mean, it sounds just a lot better than pastor, don't you think? Jesus is saying, don't get caught up in titles. Don't get caught up in being seen by people. Don't get caught up in feeding off the people, right? There's a lot of ministers, so-called ministers in the church today that feed off the people. There are a lot of ministers, so-called ministers in the church today that want people to look up to them. There are a lot of people that, that look at the ministry as just a vocation, as just a job, as just a paycheck, right? Instead of a calling of God to serve him and then to serve his people, 
right? And Jesus is warning the disciples not to go in this direction. We're to be servants. We're to be slaves of the Lord, serving him among the people, not above the people. As leaders in the church, as believers, we're to point people to the one teacher, Jesus Christ, right? There are no vertical moves in the kingdom of God. Revelation 6, uh, sorry, Revelation 2, 6, Jesus said to the church of Ephesus, but this you have that I hate, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. Uh, sorry, but this you have that you hate, the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. And again, verse uh, Revelation 2.15, he said to the church of Pergamos, thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which thing I hate. The question is, who, who are these Nicolaitans and what do they do? Well, the word Nicolaitans, it comes from two Greek words. Nikon, which, or Nikan, Nikon, Nike, which means to conquer or to rule. And Laos, which means the laity, the people. So the Nicolaitans were those who ruled over the people in a religious setting. You know, it's a hierarchy of positions within the church. Bishop, archbishop, cardinal, vicar, you know, warden, lay pastor, reader, uh, reverend, most high reverend. I mean, the list goes on and on. It's a hierarchy of the clergy ruling over common men. And Jesus hates it, he says. The Pope, great glory, all of you, me, you know what, we're all the same. We all put our pants on one leg at a time. It's just the way it is, right? Verse nine, Jesus says, do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who's in heaven. You know, this is a kind of an interesting verse, isn't it? I mean, you wonder what certain denominations do with this verse. When I'm, you know, with my Episcopalian brothers who are called father, I don't do it. I don't do it. You know, I wonder what the Catholic church does with this verse. I remember when I got a job as a, a healthcare provider for the army in Germany, you know, I, I'm new to the clinic. I'm walking down the hallway to a meeting, you know, with another doctor. And she, she turns to me and she says, what's your name? I said, oh, my name's Gary. What's yours? Oh, I'm Dr. So-and-so. I said, oh, okay. Can I have a do-over? I didn't know that's what we were doing. I didn't know we were throwing titles out here. I just thought you wanted to get to know me. Okay. You know, I used to, uh, you know, in my practice with the army primarily, but my practice... Uh, you know, I would call my patients back to the treatment room instead of having a nurse do it for me. And, uh, you know, if you had an appointment with me, I called you back at your appointment time. Now I hate wa waiting for doctors. I don't know about you guys. I mean, they think they're the only ones that got something to do, right? So you just got to wait. Your appointment's at one, but you don't get to see them till 145. You know what? I hate it. You know, enough about my problems. But, um, Anyway, I would call people back to the treatment room <clears throat> and I'd use their first name. And I can remember one time, you know, I was, went out to the waiting room. I'd come through the door and I, and I call my next patient, Bob? Bob? And this guy way at the end of the waiting room, he stands up and he says, do you mean Colonel Smith? And I said, I don't know. Is your name Bob? <laughs> you know, I... I didn't mean, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I mean, the reality is this. I'm older than the upper level of, of uh, command in the army anyway. 
most of the upper levels of command. And my civilian rank is equivalent to the rank of colonel in the army, right? So, you know what? Title's not, we're all the same. Who cares? You know, we're just men and women. If your name's Bob, come back, man. It's your appointment time. Let's go. Well, father, you know, Jesus says, don't call anyone your father here. Father here in the Greek speaks of the originator of life, right? The prohibition here is not against calling your dad father. It's okay, Brady. You can still say father, right? But it's a prohibition of saying it in a spiritual sense. Like, you know, not to call another man father as if your salvation and your forgiveness of sins has anything to do with them and is dependent on them in any way as if it originated with them. Right? Verse 10, Jesus says, and do not be called teacher for one is your teacher, the Christ. Well, hey, Gary, aren't you a pastor teacher? Are we never to call you teacher? You know, what this is talking about is never call anyone teacher in the sense that they have the chief authority in your life. No pastor is to have that authority in your life. No pastor is to rule over your life in that way, you know, teaching you all things. You know, as pastors, we're to point people to Jesus, right? He's the teacher. You know what? I love getting into the word with you. I love learning and studying about Jesus. And it's my heart and prayer that I can teach you, that I am teaching you. But, you know, I don't want you to be dependent on me. You know, that's wrong. I want each of you to be dependent on Jesus. He's the teacher. Yeah, he's the only one who's to be uh, the authority in your life. And he's the only one that you are to totally submit to. Not me. This is the fifth sign of false teachers and false leaders. These false religious leaders covet the praise and recognition of men while they have no concern for God or for the approval of God. They use their position to attract attention of men instead of seeking to glorify God. And they're very content with receiving the praise of men instead of directing that praise to God. Verse 11, Jesus says, but he who is great among you shall be your servant. Isn't that just such a simple verse? I mean, it's so easy to read. I mean, there's no problems with interpreting it. But boy, isn't that a hard verse to live out? You know, you don't. Uh, do you want to enter the kingdom of heaven? Bow your knee, humble your heart, make Christ your Lord. Do you want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? It's just as simple. Bow your knee, humble your heart, serve other people. Don't you know? The branch that bears the most fruit actually is the one that bows the lowest. That's the truth. It's just that simple. Do you want to be great in the kingdom? Then serve others. We don't, why do we miss that? Okay, next truth. Let's go. Come on, get a move on. No, let's focus on here. Focus in here what Jesus is saying. Husbands, do you want to be great? Serve your wives. Young people here. You want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? Serve. Serve your brothers and sisters. Serve your families. Right? If we'll do that, we'll be great in God's eyes. And you know what? 
we'll be storing up treasures in the kingdom of heaven and one day we'll hear Jesus himself say, well done, good and faithful servant. Verse 12, uh, Jesus says, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. If you exalt yourself, God will humble you. He will. Proverbs 6, 16 says, six things the Lord hates. Yes, seven are abomination to him. What do you think the first thing is on that list? You know, it's a proud look. Someone who's haughty, someone who's prideful, right? Go ahead and fill in the blank. Pride goes before what? Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit before the fall is what Proverbs 16, 18 says. Do we have that slide? There it is. Pride goes before destruction. Haughty spirit before a fall. Right? God knows how to humble those that need humbling. Right? And the Bible tells us that no flesh is to glory in his presence. God will not share his glory with anyone. If you get your fingerprints all over his glory, he will humble you. He can and will do it. And you know what? He can do it in relatively short order too. It doesn't take a lot of effort. He's not going to break a sweat humbling you or me. You know, both James and Peter says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I've always said, the choice is yours. Do you want to experience God's resistance? Walk in pride. You want to experience God's uh, grace? Then walk in humility. James 4.10 says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. He'll raise you up if you'll humble yourself before him. And God will use your life in great ways to glorify his name. Jesus teaches his disciples as well as all of us here today, right? That true spiritual leaders are called to their positions, right? They're not trying to get the position for themselves. They're not trying to force their way into those positions. The authority that the disciples exercise is to be done in humility and integrity. We're to have sympathy and compassion on people God has given us and trusted to us to serve. And we're actually, hey, to have compassion and sympathy on people in general. People that don't know the Lord. We're supposed to love them too. We're not to be heaping burdens, man-made rules and regulations on people, but we're to be seeking to point people to Jesus and the pure word of God and, and easing the burdens of their lives. Right? True spiritual leaders don't seek lofty titles or the limelight. They're not looking for the praise and recognition of men. They're seeking to glorify God and not draw any attention to themselves working, encouraging people to serve the Lord instead of serving them. Just like Jesus, true leaders love people and have compassion on them. He was willing to associate with the outcasts of the world. And that's the attitude we're to have, right? We're not to be seeking to be seen by the right kinds of people, right? We're not to be using people and thinking of them like what they can do for us whether or not they can help us get ahead. You know, Jesus ate with sinners and tax collectors. He was ridiculed and accused of being a friend of sinners. You know, it happens to be a title that I'm very happy that he didn't shy away from. True greatness 
Jesus said, is found in serving others, not forcing others to serve you. Jesus washed the feet of his disciples. It was the task of the lowliest slaves. And he washed all their feet. He washed Judas' feet. Right? True greatness is not manufactured. It can only come from, from God as we obey him. If we exalt ourselves, God will humble us. But if we humble ourselves in due time, God will exalt us. You know, we've seen in our study through the course of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus doesn't condemn ambition. He doesn't condemn a desire to be great in the kingdom of heaven. He condemns selfish ambition and lording, um, you know, your position over others. He tells us what he wants from us as his followers. He wants us to love one another. And in doing so, we'll be like him. And he tells us, the things that we're to avoid as his followers. We're to avoid the attitude and the practices of the scribes and the Pharisees. The judgmental, hypocritical, disconnected, unloving, unsympathetic attitudes of false religion. You know, if you're here today, if you're watching online and you've never asked Jesus, you know, for forgiveness of your sins, you've never asked him to come into your life as your Lord and Savior, you know this message isn't really for you. The important thing for you to hear is it's important for you to give your life to Jesus Christ because it will determine where you're going to spend eternity. You know, Jesus loves you so much that he gave his life in order to save yours. Why not humble yourself? Humble your heart and ask him to forgive you of your sins and come into your life as your savior. You know, all you have to do is pray in your heart. And the words don't mean anything. It's the sincerity of your heart that is of the utmost important, right? You just confess your sins. You tell him you're sorry for the things that you've done. You know, that you believe that he died on the cross for your sins and three days later he rose from the dead. And you just ask him to forgive you and to fill you with his Holy Spirit and to come into your life and give you the power to live for him. From this day forward, you're determined to give your life to him. That's all it takes. You know what? If you've never given your life to Christ, if you're here visiting, you don't know Jesus, why not pray that right now in your heart? Let's pray. The worship team would come forward. Lord, I do pray for anyone that doesn't know you, either here or online or watching this video sometime in the future that they would see their need for a Savior. And Lord, they would humble their hearts. They would bow their knee and ask you to forgive them of their sins. And that they would just do business with you from the sincerity of their heart, believing that you died for them and rose again. For the rest of us, for your church, Lord, your bride, Lord, if there's something in our lives that isn't pleasing to you, help us now to do business with you and just take steps to ask you to forgive us, to, to immediately respond and continue in that that you've called us to do. Lord, just to live for you, loving one another, serving people, seeking to be transparent, seeking to point people to you, bringing glory to your name, Lord. Would you do that in our midst? Would you allow Calvary Chapel Truckee to be known in this town and in this county, and in this state, and in the world, Lord, as a church that seeks only to lead people to you, 
to bless people and help them grow in the knowledge of your goodness and grace. Lord, we ask these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.